Marmite is something you either love or you hate. Personally, I love it. Marmite on toast is just fantastic. Apparently, it largely depends on whether you were given it when you were young, and I certainly was. As far back as I can remember into my childhood, Marmite on toast was just a regular part of breakfast or supper, and quite often both. Claire, on the other hand, hates Marmite. She finds it disgusting, as do Naomi and Daniel. In fact, it's one of my big disappointments that I didn't manage to get them into it when they were uh, little. We quite often have people staying with us from abroad, and they've obviously never tasted Marmite. It's a peculiarly British thing, and I, I love trying to get them to taste it just to see their reactions. For those of you who've never tasted Marmite, how can I describe it to you? Well, it's made from yeast. It's a yeast extract, and the flavour is very, very strong, really, really intense. It's kind of sort of uh, savoury, meaty. It's very, very salty. Let me just uh, have a little taste here. It's a thick, kind of black, brown, sort of treacle stuff. I don't know if you can see it. There it is. Mm. And yeah, it's just really, really strongly savoury, really, really salty. And you either love it or you hate it. It's a really difficult thing for me to describe the taste. If it was possible to get you all to stand in two groups this morning, one group for those who love Marmite and another group for those who hate Marmite, it would illustrate just how divisive Marmite really is. And I suspect that the group that hate Marmite would probably be a much larger group than the group that love Marmite. Now, obviously, the, that large group would be clearly wrong. They would obviously have really faulty taste buds in their mouth. It would be the much smaller group, the group with the more discerning palate that would be right, obviously. And it, it really is a love it or hate it thing. There's no middle ground. You either love it and you eat it or you hate it and you throw it out. You don't want to do it. You know, I never thought I'd say this, but Jesus is a little bit like Marmite. You either accept him or you reject him. There's no middle ground. You either accept Jesus or you reject Jesus. There is no middle ground. We started studying John's gospel, John's account of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We started uh, studying John way back in May. And we've reached now today a decisive point in John's account where there's a real split between those who liked what Jesus was saying and those who disliked what Jesus was saying. There's two groups. There's a large group of people who reject Jesus and they walk away from him at this point. And there's a much smaller group that accept Jesus and stay with him. We've reached this kind of Marmite moment in John's account where the majority of the people are repulsed. They're offended by what Jesus is teaching. And there's a much smaller group that loves what they are hearing. Now, last week we looked at John chapter 6 verses 22 to 59. And we saw how Jesus explained that he was the bread of life to this crowd there in the synagogue in Capernaum and as he did that most of them struggled to understand what he was actually saying and then when they did begin to grasp what he was saying they then took exception to what he was saying so before we read today what happened next in John chapter 6 we're going to read from 60 to 71 what was it that Jesus had been saying to them well, without repeating everything that we looked at last week, we could summarise it as follows under these six bullet points. Jesus told them that they were really only interested in him so that they could see miracles and get free food. He 
claimed to be the bread of life, the one that had come from God. He said he was the answer to their deepest need, the deepest need that every human being has. He told them that he was greater than Moses, that he had come from heaven and that he was going to give his life as a sacrifice for the whole world. He told them that they had to uh, metaphorically eat the flesh and blood of Jesus. In other words, take into themselves by faith what Jesus would achieve later when he gave his life there on the cross. And he told them that they couldn't earn God's acceptance and salvation. It was only by putting their faith and their trust in him. And that even this was only something that God could enable them to do. And the reality was that the majority of people listening to Jesus that day in the synagogue really didn't like what Jesus said. And it's at this point in the events of John 6, this Marmite moment, that we're going to break into the passage and continue looking at what happens. So we're going to read from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. I'm going to read it to you now. The word should come up for you on the screen, and I'll read it to you this morning. And this is verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. But Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. As Jesus came to the end of what he was saying to the crowd there in the synagogue in Capernaum, this is what we read. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? John refers to the crowd here as Jesus' disciples. Now, he's not referring to Jesus' 12 disciples, although the 12 disciples were present there in the synagogue. Jesus is referring to the crowd of people that had been following him around and that had gone into the synagogue there to listen to him and had been listening to the words that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Now, a disciple at its simplest is somebody who follows another person and learns from them. And this crowd were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus in that sense. But they certainly weren't disciples in the sense that we tend to use the word today. We tend to use the, the word today descri uh, to describe somebody who has really committed their life to Jesus. Whereas the majority of people there in the synagogue on that day in Capernaum certainly hadn't committed to following Jesus. They were still just checking him out. They were checking his teachings out. They wanted to find out more and know. So they were following him around. They were learning from him. But they hadn't reached that point where they really committed their life to Jesus. The majority of this crowd of disciples really didn't like what they heard Jesus teach that day. They thought it was a hard teaching. In fact, in the Greek language, this phrase means offensive. They really didn't like what Jesus was teaching them and what Jesus was saying to them. They didn't like what Jesus was 
claiming about himself and they didn't like what Jesus was saying about them. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? The majority of those listening to Jesus that day were offended by Jesus and offended by what he was teaching. And, you know, sadly, the same is often true today when people really find out about the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, rather than the Jesus perhaps that they've made up or have heard about, then they are offended by what they find and by what Jesus says and does in the Bible. People love the Jesus, uh, the sort of meek and mild, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. They, they love it when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan about being kind to other people. They love it when Jesus says, do not judge other people. But it's often the case that when people then read the four gospels and really encounter everything that Jesus said and did and was they find that Jesus and his teachings are offensive Jesus is a little bit like Marmite when you taste Jesus you either love him or you hate him one of the reasons that some people find Jesus and his teachings offensive is because of what he has to say about who he is and who we are people often like Jesus when he's portrayed as a good man, a, a, a great teacher, a great example. But when they realise that Jesus claims to be God, it becomes offensive to them. Because if Jesus is God, then they have to submit to him either voluntarily in this life or they'll be forced to bow the knee before him when he comes again. People often like Jesus when he's portrayed as someone who says nice things and he certainly did say some nice things. He said some amazing things. But when they read what Jesus says about sin and about judgment and about hell and about our need of a saviour, then sometimes people find that offensive, just like the crowd there in the synagogue did that day. Jesus continued by saying this. What if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? In other words, if you find what I've said so far offensive, what are you going to do when you see me ascend to heaven and, and sit down at the right hand of God, my father, ruling and reigning? What are you going to do then? How are you going to think about me then? Jesus had talked to them about the fact that he was the bread of life. And he'd used this picture language of them needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not meaning, of course, that they should engage in cannibalism, but rather that by putting their faith in him, they and we today should apply to their lives what his body and blood would achieve there on the cross. And so Jesus continues by saying, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The Holy Spirit had come down on Jesus at his baptism, as we saw way back in John 1 verse 32. And Jesus was the one on whom God or the one to whom God had given the spirit without limit as we saw in John 3, 34. And so Jesus' words are the words of God himself. And when we accept and absorb into ourselves Jesus' words, we receive the eternal life that the Holy Spirit brings. Jesus' words, when they're rightly understood and absorbed, generate eternal life within us, whereas the flesh, Jesus says, counts for nothing. Jesus wasn't teaching them or us today that we have to be cannibals and physically eat Jesus' body and his blood and his and his flesh it's not about the flesh it's not about physical things it's not about doing something to earn God's acceptance God's forgiveness 
the eternal life that he offers. There's nothing physical that we can do to receive these things. And of course, as we saw last week, these things, forgiveness, uh, eternal life, a relationship with God, are our greatest needs. The way we receive these things is by putting our faith and trust in who Jesus is, what Jesus says, and what Jesus does. The way we receive forgiveness, eternal life, and a relationship with God is through accepting and absorbing the words and acts of Jesus just like we do when we eat food. But Jesus is a little bit like Marmite. People are divided over him. Not everyone will accept who he is, what he does and what he says. Look at verse 64. Yet there are some of you, said Jesus, who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Most of the people there that day did not believe. They just couldn't accept what Jesus was saying. And one of the men there would go on actually to betray him about a year later. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And this is one of the things that people often find difficult to believe and to accept. Because we all like to think that we are the one who's in charge of our lives, of our worlds. We like to think that we are in control of things. We like to think that even though we know that there's nothing that we can do to be accepted by God and that we are only saved alone by his grace, by God treating us in a way that we don't deserve. We know all that, but we still like to think that we contribute in some way to our salvation. We still like to think that ultimately we're the ones who are in control. And our pride really struggles when Jesus says that we're not. Now, I'm not pretending this is easy to understand. I don't fully understand how on the one hand we're saved because God enables us to accept the message. And yet at the same time, it's a choice that we genuinely make. It's difficult to understand and accept. Yet these are the words of Jesus. And Jesus' words are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is God. And so I need to humble myself and accept it even though I don't fully understand it. Most of the crowd there that day couldn't accept it. They were offended by what Jesus was saying. And so we read in verse 66, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The Greek phrase can equally be translated, Because of this, many of his disciples turned back. And I, I think probably John intends us for, for us to read it both ways. It was at this point, and it was because of what Jesus had been saying, that most of the people present there rejected Jesus. Most of the people left and left Jesus. Jesus was and is like Marmite. Jesus was like this very divisive food. You either love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground. If you haven't, if you haven't reached a point in your life, whether you either love him or you hate him, then you haven't really understood who Jesus claims to be. You haven't really understood what he teaches and what he did on the cross. Because once we really understand these things, even if just at a very simple level, then we have to then make a choice to either accept Jesus or reject him. To either accept him or reject him. Now we don't need to understand 
everything about him and what he did and what he teaches in order to bow the knee and surrender to him as our Lord and accept him as our saviour. But we do have to come to a point where we make a choice. This is the last week that we're going to be studying John here at Regent for a while. We'll return to John next year in 2021. But for now, we're going to take a break. Next week, we've got a guest speaker, Stephen McCoy from Motherwell. And the week after that, we're going to resume um, uh, here and uh, we're going to be looking at Second Timothy, the letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy a little bit later on in the New Testament. So as we come to the end of this current series in John's Gospel, if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, and if you've yet to put your faith in who he is and all that he's done for you in dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, then can I challenge you to take that step? Just like the crowd there in the synagogue in John 6, it's time for you to decide also what you will do with Jesus. Will you accept and believe in Jesus or will you reject him and turn away? There's no middle ground. It's either one or the other. Maybe you've been watching online since May and it's been fantastic to have you with us. And I hope you're going to continue watching with us. Maybe you've been watching since May and you've followed the journey that we've been on as we've worked our way through John's gospel. Well, now is the time to decide what you're going to do with what you've heard. The Bible says now is the day of salvation. What will you do with Jesus? It seems that at this point, most of the people in the synagogue there in Capernaum left and all that remained was Jesus and the 12 disciples. There was perhaps a few others, but the kind of, as we read it, that seems to be what, what, what was happening. It was just Jesus and the 12. Everybody else had gone. You do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the 12. Of course, Jesus already knew the answer. He was asking the question for the sake of the 12 disciples to give them an opportunity to state where they stood, to make a stand. And good old Peter, as he so often does, jumps in and he speaks for the, the rest of the disciples, or he thinks he does. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Now, I suspect from what else we know about Peter that he didn't fully understand at this stage everything that Jesus had said. We know that from when we get to the end of the Gospels, we discover that they only then did they fully grasp what was going on. But Peter knew enough to believe and know that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was the Holy One of God. And he believed that Jesus' words were true. He didn't understand all of them, but what he knew he understood and he believed. And he believed that when a person believed and accepted and absorbed the words of Jesus into, into their life, that they would receive eternal life. You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. Uh, uh, Peter says to Jesus. And Peter and the 12 disciples were all that was left of this crowd that was in the synagogue. The rest had left. It was just them. They were the ones who loved Jesus and accepted him. They tasted what Jesus was teaching, what he was claiming, what he was doing, and they loved what they found. They were the true believers, and the rest of the so-called disciples had, by this point and at this point, rejected what Jesus was saying and doing. 
They left him. And now it was just Jesus and the twelve. But Peter didn't speak for all of the twelve, even though he thought he did. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. One of these twelve disciples didn't believe and know. About one year later, Judas would tragically sell his soul to the devil and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But for now, everyone else had gone. And all that was left were these 12 men who had accepted Jesus and would continue to follow him, and perhaps one or two others. And so often, those who love Jesus and accept him find themselves, like the 12 there that day, in the minority. You know, I'm guessing that for most of you today that love Jesus, that have accepted him, you're probably the only Christian or perhaps just one of only a few anyway in your workplace. I certainly was in all the time I worked as a customs officer. I never worked with another Christian that I was aware of. You're probably the only Christian in your class at school or perhaps just one of only a very few people that you know of who are Christians. You may well be the only Christian in your group at university. Um, that's why it's great to you know, get yourself uh, involved in the Christian union there at uni. You may be the only Christian in your family. Accepting Jesus into our lives is the greatest and the most amazing thing we will ever do. But it often means and sometimes means that we will then find ourselves in a minority. And we need to be prepared for what that means. See, being a true believer will often mean remaining true to Jesus, even when people around us reject him and turn away because they don't like what we are saying and they don't like what Jesus is saying. It's not easy being the only Christian. It's not easy when those around us don't like Jesus and they reject what he says and what he's done for them. And then by um, inference, they reject us. Being a true believer will often mean following Jesus loyally when his truth is hard to understand and even harder sometimes to apply. Not everything that Jesus says or that the Bible says in general will always be straightforward or easy to understand. And it will sometimes be really hard to put it into practice. Being a true believer will often mean following Jesus loyally when his claims seem contradicted by our current circumstances. When we lose our job, when our health deteriorates or a relationship goes wrong, it can be difficult in those times to stay focused on following Jesus. But actually, it's in those moments that we need Jesus the most. It's in those moments that Jesus, the one who has the words of eternal life, can become most precious to us. Being a true believer will often mean following Jesus loyally, even when we find ourselves part of a small, ostracized minority. All that was left in the synagogue that day was just these 12 men. And, every, and, and even one of them wasn't a true believer. Most people won't share our beliefs and most people will reject them. The cultural climate in the UK is changing fast. And if we're following Jesus, we need to face up to the fact that to be a follower of Jesus and hold fast to who he is, what he did and what he said will sometimes make us really unpopular. 
In fact, we're getting to a point in this country where following the Bible might mean losing our job and our career. Of course, it's always meant this in some countries in the world. It's just new for us today in this country at this time. Being a true believer will sometimes mean following Jesus loyally, even when we're let down and disappointed by those who profess to be believers. Eleven of these twelve men had to deal with the huge shock and disappointment of what Judas would do a year later when he betrayed Jesus for, for 30 pieces of silver. And sometimes, sadly, there will be people who profess to be believers. They might even be heavily involved in our church. They might even be in leadership positions, but they let us down and they let Jesus down. And when that happens, it's so important to remember that we're not following individuals. We're not following other people. As good as they might seem to be, we're following Jesus. And so it's important that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Accepting and believing in Jesus is the greatest and the most important choice that we will ever make. But following him will not always be easy. That's why it's so important that we're part of a local church where we can meet with other believers and encourage them and in turn be encouraged by them. I'm sure the 12 disciples were able to encourage each other on the way. And after Jesus rose from the dead and went back to heaven, they were able to encourage each other and spur each other on. It's so important that we do that with other Christians. It's not just about turning up once a week for a service on a Sunday or even t tuning in once a week online. It's about throwing our whole weight into our church family and investing our lives into the lives of our fellow believers. True believers in Jesus will nearly always be in the minority, just like the 12 disciples were in this passage. So it's so important, it's vitally important that we surround ourselves with like-minded believers. We need to meet together on Sundays, absolutely. And that's why it's so important that as soon as is Physically possible, we will start meeting physically again in this building here on Sundays. The word church means God's gathered people, the assembled people of God. And it's difficult to be the assembled people of God when we're not physically gathering together. So we need to press on and do that. And hopefully, God willing, we'll do that soon. We'll be physically gathering together again. But we also need to commit to a home group and intentionally invest time and energy in relationships with a small group of other believers and we need to be intentional about having members of our church family in our homes and meeting up with them so that we can encourage one another as we follow Jesus and that's especially important at the moment when we can't physically meet together in the building it's so important that we keep in contact with each other that we meet up with each other We're, we can do that legally have people in your homes call each other up encourage one another so important that we do that. Jesus is the greatest treasure that we will ever find. He is worth whatever discomfort and challenges this world may throw at us. He is the Holy One of God and He and only He has the words of eternal life. Let me finish this morning and draw this series to a close by reading the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you don't know Jesus this morning, why not take that step today and give your life to him? If you love Jesus, then stay faithful. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Encourage one another. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching.